Hey, it's Alan Carter. Welcome to the podcast, Nails on a Chalkboard. Is that an appropriate thing to say in the legislature in the province of Ontario? Plus, we're going to look at the variants of concern. Are they combining to make a new super variant of concern? And are the kids really all right? Caroline Alfonso from the Globe and Mail checking in on the kids' grades. Let's get to it. So many things do not make sense. I don't get it. I'm baffled, I'm bewildered, I'm mystified, I'm perplexed, I'm puzzled. The news, it makes my head spin. And this, this makes me just plain old spit out my gum. It's like listening to nails on a chalkboard listening to you. That is Doug Ford in the legislature. To Andrea Horvath this morning. Let's play that one more time, Doug Ford. It's like listening to nails on a chalkboard listening to you. It's like listening to nails on a chalkboard listening to you. Anybody want to guess what the reaction to that has been when you say that to the female leader of the opposition? Anybody want to guess? I'm going to tell you, coming right up here on the Alan Carter Radio Program. But the news and the commentary and what's going on in the legislature, all of it, it might drive me to drink. Or, in the province of Ontario, I may drive somewhere to drink, specifically a 7-Eleven. Have you heard this? 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven says it's planning in-store service of a small selection of Ontario-made beer and wine products. It has made an application to the Ontario government to do so. The company says the beer and wine would be offered during limited hours in designated consumption areas of some Ontario stores. What? (laughs) I'm just over here by the beef jerky getting myself one of those car air fresheners, you know, the pine-scented ones, and I'll have, ooh, I'll have that milkshake IPA. What? It continues. This is also what 7-Eleven has had to say, this according to the Canadian press. 7-Eleven says the alcoholic drinks would complement its push into fresh and hot food. Mmm! This chili dog is fabulous. Mmm! get myself a bone shaker with it. It's incomprehensible, it's inexplicable, and it's unfathomable. Man, I really enjoy my new thesaurus. Hey, guess what is right around the corner as we make sense of this 7-Eleven thing? The budget. The provincial budget is coming. No date yet, but it's got to be tabled before March 31st. So what is going on with this 7-Eleven thing? What they're doing here is they're trying to put a little pressure on the government. Maybe there's already something in play here. By the way, when can I get a six-pack from the corner store? You know, to go, not to sit in. You know, and enjoy with my chili dog, but to go. Because remember the Ford government promised that would happen? Remember? Dalton McGinty and the Liberals promised it, too. Didn't happen. I know we got bigger things. But I don't think that's going to happen either. Still, I'm confused. I'm flummoxed. I'm flustered. I'm discombobulated. Specifically, I'm confused by this... What is happening with the province? We're not reopening, but we're transitioning. We aren't reopening it, uh, the province. We're transitioning. 
See, Doug Ford there saying, explaining to us that we're not reopening the province. We are transitioning to a framework. It is a completely different thing. If you're confused by it, there's no confusion. It's just that we're going to allow businesses, non-essential businesses, to reopen. And in some places, you can go get a haircut. You can go back to the gym, but we are not reopening. It's a transition to a framework. It's a totally, totally different thing. Right. Okay, fine. I'm good to, I'm good with that. But for all the I listen to the advice of doctors that Doug Ford says over and over again. Here is some absolutely hard truth. This is from Barbara Yaffe, the Associate Medical Officer of Health for this province, talking about something that I pointed out on this program a number of times, which is we have always been told that anything you do, any health measure, you do anything, you wait two weeks, then you figure out if it's working, and then you do something else. You don't do a whole bunch of things all at once because then you don't have no idea where the transmission's coming from. Transmission goes down, you don't know why. If it goes up, you don't know why. So why is it that we're letting kids go back to in-class learning at the same time we are allowing, it's not a reopening, it's a transitioning, we're transitioning to a color-coded framework. Listen to Barbara Yaffe. Listen to this. Ideally. Uh, we would like to wait two weeks before we see a potential impact from a measure. On the other hand, uh, we know that all the other measures that are being taken have a lot of significant uh, deterrence and bad uh, outcomes and negative effects on people. So it's a question of balance and uh, decision by the government in terms of which measures to take when. But we're very carefully monitoring. That is Barbara Yaffe, the Associate Medical Officer of Health in this province. Did you get that? Did you get it? you got to read between the lines there a little bit. Ideally, we would wait. But, you know, bad outcomes and the government has chosen, balanced, has chosen to go with this, not a reopening, but a transitioning to the framework. You get my point here? My point is that it is not the health advice here that is driving the decision. It is it is a balance. Now, you can say that is exactly what we elect officials to do. That's what they do. That's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to take all the advice and find some balance. But if the government and the premier constantly say, I listen to the advice of the health experts, and then we find out, mm, yes, we've listened, but we're not taking that advice. And here is the leader of the opposition, Andrea Horvath, in the House, driving home this point, especially talking about this whole emergency break thing. We get this emergency break where individual medical officers of health can say, that's it, throw on the break, we're closing it down, shut it all down. Here's the leader of the opposition in the House where things kind of go a little awry for her. The emergency break that apparently the government is uh, relying upon has no criteria. It's not defined as yet. I apologize. That should have been off. (laughs) Tear it off your phone. (laughs) That is Andrea Horvath trying to make the point that this whole thing that the government is basing its return, its transition to the framework all based on this emergency break that if things, all of a sudden, variants get out of control, then the emergency break, just throw on the break! We, we have no metrics. We have no metrics on when that should happen. And then, oh my, how about this? Andrew Horvath? 
Global's Alan Carter, as a result of this, said this, for better or worse, political leadership has overruled health advice. So here we are. The Premier is literally Order. hitting the gas when he doesn't know how to use the emergency brake. That is Andrea Horvath in question period in the Ontario legislature, quoting a tweet of mine from yesterday where I pointed out what I have just gone through with Barbara Yaffe and reading between the line and what it says about for better or worse, political leadership has overruled health advice. And I'm very specific about for better or worse there because I am not making a value judgment about it. What I'm telling you is that that is what the doctors are telling us. They don't say it straight out, but that's what they're saying. And by the way, if right now you're saying, oh, Alan Carter being quoted by the NDP, mouth of the NDP, oh, socialist, I will have you know that when the liberals were in power, and I was the Queen's Park press guy, was Queen's Park bureau chief, pardon me, I was routinely quoted by the opposition. In that case, it was the progressive conservatives. All right? So just... Just settle down. Although all of you hate listeners out there, I love you. Thank you so much for listening. Please continue to hate listen. I do enjoy it. Now, here's what the Premier has to say about this whole emergency break thing. The leader of the opposition knows very well that uh, at any given time, the local medical officer of health can put out a Section 22 and uh, put a stop to any uh, opening. That is the emergency break. Premier saying that you know, Dr. Lowe in Peel, Dr. Davila in Toronto, Dr. Kurji in York Region, the hotspots, those are the local medical officers of health. They can throw on that emergency break anytime. Throw the break. And here's what I'm going to tell you is that you're going to hear later today from Dr. Davila more sort of questioning whether or not the stay-at-home order should be lifted next week. We heard that from Dr. Lowe already today. And so I, I, I think you're going to see the emergency break being applied even before we get to a transitioning to the framework. And then when the government was asked about the wisdom of delaying March break, another thing that the opposition saying, well, why are we doing this? Here's the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, going on the offensive against Andrew Horvath. How can she undermine confidence in the medical leader of this province who's trying to ensure every day we are able to recover and able to protect the, the public? I think that does a great disservice to our institutions. And honestly, I'm quite shocked that the leader of the opposition would undermine confidence in the leader who's provided guidance to this province to get us through the worst of this pandemic. I'm shocked, I tell you. I'm shocked. I'm reminded of that line from Casablanca. I'm shocked that there would be gambling going on in here. I'm, 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 I'm aghast, I'm appalled, I'm astonished, I'm astounded, I'm apoplectic. This is Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education. And then, now, here we get to the big thorny one. I played this at the beginning, I will play it again. This is Doug Ford to Andrea Horvath responding to criticisms about the inconsistencies about the, well, we're not reopening, but we're transitioning to a framework, and the difficulty that people are having to adding all of that up. Doug Ford reacts to Andrea Horvath this way. It's like listening to nails on a chalkboard listening to you. 
like nails on a chalkboard. Immediately, that has that has prompted accusations of sexism, misogyny. The opposition, both the liberals, the leader of the liberals, Stephen Del Duca, and other members of the NDP have called out the premier. What do you make of that? Are you astounded? Astonished? Very possibly outraged? Do you think Doug Ford owes an apology for saying nails on a chalkboard? Let me ask you this. If it was Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Green Party, accusing the government of something, do you think that Doug Ford would have said nails on a chalkboard? Just some quick breaking news coming right in, just getting this from uh, Fox News. Rush Limbaugh, the conservative talk radio pioneer, dead at the age of 70. Uh, Rush Limbaugh uh, died Wednesday at the age of 70 after a battle with lung cancer, that according to his family. That is just developing coming out right now. Let's check in on what's going on with variants of concern in this province. Uh, Dr. Barbara Yaffe in the update uh, yesterday said the province of Ontario has 319 cases of the variant across 15 public health units. Of course, there are different variants of the newly confirmed totals. 309, the vast majority of those cases, are the so-called UK variant, the B117. Nine are the South African, that is B1351. And one is the Brazilian strain. Uh, 81% of those cases are of either outbreak associated or close contacts with a confirmed case. But 11%, and this is particularly concerning, 11% uh, have no link identified and uh, 7% are travel-related. Obviously, we have the travel-related. We understand what what that's about. But when we have cases out there where we just have no link, that is a, a big concern. And a fourth COVID variant may have now arrived in Canada uh, and it comes at a time when it's obviously very concerning about these variants. The health officer in British Columbia, Bonnie Henry, announcing that that province is investigating a case of the variant B1525, for those of you scoring at home, uh, from a young individual who had recently traveled from Nigeria. And then there's this. Wow, this one really grabbed me to yesterday when I saw it. Two variants, this is from the New Scientist, two variants of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus that causes COVID-19 have combined to form a heavily mutated hybrid version of the virus. The recombination event was discovered in a sample in California. All of that is enough to make you just a little bit worried, even with the vaccines on the way, Dr. Suman Chakrabarthi is an infectious disease specialist and joins me on the line. How concerned, doctor, should we be about the recombination event? Uh, you, you know, yeah, I read about that this morning, and I think that the concern for the public should be really minimal. Uh, this is one of those things that this has been going on for for decades. This is something that we know happens in coronaviruses well before, um, you know, um, COVID ever came on the scene. And it's just something that's now coming in because of this story. So, of course, when it, it sounds scary, but it's something that is a part of what happens when viruses propagate. It's a common event. And yeah, we need to monitor it. But I think that, I think people have X-Men in their mind when they're thinking of mutations. And that's where I think this fear comes from. <laughs> well, 
explain to me what the difference between recombination and a mutation would be. Okay, so a mutation, think about when the virus is by itself and it's, it's uh, copying itself, the um, enzyme that does that makes a lot of mistakes. And these mistakes can kind of, um, you know, eventually add up and they can sometimes give it a bit of a benefit, but most of the time it does nothing for it. These are mutations. And occasionally we see these mutations that uh, make the characteristics a bit different. Recombination happens if somebody happens to be infected with two different variants of the virus, which can happen in high transmission areas. Sometimes this enzyme can make a mistake on multiple strands of genetic material, and you put together this virus uh, that has, uh, you know, different properties. It can have properties from one and uh, another one put together, but oftentimes these things have a fitness cost to the virus, actually makes it less robust. So just because you are seeing a recombinant doesn't mean that it's like, you know, a, a super wolverine or something like that. Right. It doesn't automatically mean that it would be outside the efficacy of the vaccines that we have. Exactly. And even the variants that we know now, the ones that are showing you know, re- reduced response to the vaccine, the main thing is the vaccines all still reduce severe illness. And that's our ticket out of the pandemic. Part of the thinking about, especially when you start thinking about worldwide rollout of the vaccine, the concern has, has been and continues to be that if we do not get vaccines to third world countries and and the coronavirus goes through there, then more variants would develop and then we might be playing whack-a-mole with this, you know, for years and years to come. Do you share that worry? Yeah, well, first of all, it is very, very important for everybody to get vaccine because this is a global disease and it's not going to be under control until we have everybody uh, in uh, developing and developed countries. One thing is, though, is that um, we, many of us are looking at this differently because it's showing all the signs that this is going to become an endemic virus, somewhat like influenza. Not like it is now, but it's something that you have problems with in the wintertime. It goes up, you're able to manage it, and then it goes back down with a seasonal variation. Uh, it's not going to be like something that's um, overtaking hospitals. But if you kind of frame it that way, you're realizing this is what we're, we're um, going towards right now. So not eradicating it and having to maybe give booster shots and slightly alter the vaccine may probably need to happen in the next couple of years. Right. So, so much of the way that we get a flu shot every year and it changes, its makeup changes, depending on what the prediction is of what strain might be out there, that we might have to get a booster shot every year uh, for whatever they're, I, do, I don't know if they'll continue to call it, COVID-19 or if they'll update that. Exactly. Uh, But that's exactly right. And remember now with this mRNA technology, um, it's technically, and I put this in quotes, easier to tinker with the the formula to get a vaccine that's going to be somewhat uh, altered to account for these changes. But, you know, we're not looking to eradicate this virus. You can never, you can really not eradicate a respiratory virus unless it does it on its own. This is likely going to be something that's with us, but in a much milder form that's going to usually affect in the, uh, the winter months. I'm speaking with Dr. Suman Chakrabarty about uh, the variants of concern. I, and let me ask you that is, if this is all right. I, I want to ask you about what we heard from Dr. Barbara Yaffe about uh, the two-week waiting period that we normally try and do between any point we change a public uh, health advice or change something. And the fact that we're not waiting two weeks in between sending kids back to in-class and some non-essential businesses reopening. Could you just comment on that at all? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing that I think is important is that there's never going to be a good time uh, in everyone's mind to reopen. You know, uh, And I think that what we're doing right now is, uh, is the way to go. You want to kind of do this 
watch it closely, see how things go. And you have a way to pivot if things get, uh, get bad. We know that school, uh, what they're opening up right now are relatively low-risk activities. You know, this is, you know, low-volume retail. Uh, you know, there's been tons of things about bars and restaurants, but we saw very little um, transmission in bars and restaurants when they were abiding by those um, uh, capacity limits. So I think that right now, I think this is not something that is necessarily a recipe for an explosion of cases. So that's why I think that putting these things together, it's okay to do it because Right now, things are going down with low risk as any, and we're going into the spring season. We know that viruses in general, respiratory viruses, are much less uh, transmitted when, things, when people are more outside. So I think you have to try. Otherwise, people are really, really suffering right now, not just from uh, basically from non-COVID-related things. And I think we have to think about that as well. I, that, I really appreciate your perspective on that, and I do appreciate that. I, I just will point out that that there are others, as you well know, um, who are regularly commenting, and and they have different perspectives. Of, like we've seen headlines about sleepwalking into a third wave and all of sort of that. And I just wonder if you could comment on how all of that impacts the public from your perspective when we have these different voices. And I know it's a discussion, of course. But just how does that impact the public? Yeah, I, th- I think it's important. The public, uh, I think at this point, we understand that this is a, a virus that's with us. It's serious. And, but, uh, you know, at, at the same time, like, you know, we've put so much resources into COVID. It's important for us to consider what everything is going um, on in the, the, the rest of society. And I think uh, that's one of the things that is uh, part of the risk-benefit uh, ratio here. Um, I respectfully disagree with sleepwalking into another crisis. I think that uh, we have to remember there are many things apart from just the virus characteristics that causes transmission. There's population level immunity, there's density, there's weather, there's all sorts of different factors. And, you know, we do often see a double wave of, of uh, respiratory virus in the wintertime with influenza. The wave that happens at the later part of the winter is often smaller. So I think people are assuming that if we get a third wave, it's going to be massive. Not necessarily. I appreciate being cautious. I don't think we should open up and have Metallica concerts right now. I, <laughs> I do think we need to really look at this in a way, have, have a, mo- a way that we can monitor this and then see what happens because we do have a safety valve. Doctor, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks again for your perspective. You got it. Take care. That is Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, who is an infectious disease specialist, and uh, really appreciate that because I, it's so important to get that balance, isn't it? Uh, and I was going to make a master of puppets joke about Metallica, but now it's it's I've, I don't know I've I'm too I'm too worried about the variants of concern, which I should have been a Metallica album variants of concern tour 1984 Metallica. Hey there, parents. How you feeling? The kids back to school. Dropped my grade seven or off there this morning. Gone outside the car. There he went. Boom. I thought to myself, Woo! <laughs> Uh, but then I remembered his report card, which I've had, which I got recently. And, uh, that, um, I think for a lot of parents across the province, I think there's reason for concern. Caroline Alfonso is the education reporter for the Globe and Mail has been digging into the report cards. Caroline, hello. Uh, what have you found? Hi, Alan. What have I found? Um, you know, I think you are right, Alan. There is a reason for some concern, uh, I had a story that ran today in the Globe and Mail looking at that issue right across the country. And one of the things that 
alerted me to it. I mean, I've been following this issue for quite some time, but there's a principal at a school here in Toronto in the, in the East End who sent out a newsletter to families at the end of January basically saying kids' education has been disrupted for the better part of a year now. They've been in and out of school. Um, there's a lot of challenges, and you should basically brace for report cards that are different from years past. Um <laughs> And uh, a lot of parents received their report cards last week. I got mine from my kids. And I think, um, you know, while there has been a lot of disruption in education for kids, we have to remember that the expectations, uh, the curriculum expectations, have not been adjusted Mm. to reflect those disruptions. So you Teachers still have to assign grades based on those overall expectations, not based on the fact that your children and mine and thousands and millions of kids have been not in school for this entire period in a consistent way learning. And and you point out, and I read your piece, which is just excellent. And you, you point out, and it just really brought it home to me. I, I you know, I we're struggling uh, as many families are. And then I counted my privileges, and my privileges include um, Wi-Fi, high-speed internet, um, all the technology that the kids might possibly need. Um, English is a first language, you know, uh, you know, the, the fact that I can't figure out my, my son's grade seven science and math is, is, is my own uh, language difficulty. But, you know, for so many others, they don't have everything that I have. And I just can't imagine how much more difficult that must be. That's right. I mean, we have to remember that technology, we may have an outage once in a while, but there are homes where English is not the first language. Technology could be foreign, and parents are struggling to figure out how to log their kids into an online classroom. We have to remember that, and I think um, kids that previously struggled in school are probably struggling even more so right now. I, um, For the story, I spoke to uh, a family and also the Newcomers Association in the Windsor-Essex area, And um, the woman, the manager who's responsible of sort of linking families with their schools uh, spoke to me about the challenges, not only now, but also in the spring where her staff and she and her staff had to go on a WhatsApp video call to help families determine or just help families put, you know, press the right buttons on a computer Hmm. so that they're young children, we're talking about like kindergarten, grade one, grade two, could could log into their online classroom. Like, think about that, Alan, and how easier it is for us to do and right. what challenges. And then, you know, kids, you know, especially newcomers, ESL kids, they need that face-to-face instruction that teachers provide. And being in and out of school in such a disrupted academic year Many are forecasting that kids will generally be behind. I mean, some kids are adaptable and can can move along and are doing fine. Uh, (laughs) There's many kids that are struggling right now and don't have a stable school environment. They don't know, you know, what what school is going to look like for the next 
little while, whether an outbreak is, for example, going to shutter their classroom and they're back home for 14 days. And it's just we haven't started to think about those things. I understand there's a lot going on right now and we're just trying to keep schools open and we're doing what we can at the moment. But one of the issues that I'm hearing more and more is that we're not thinking about these long-term impacts on kids' education. Right. And and we're almost out of time, Caroline. I'm speaking with Caroline Alfonso, the education reporter from the Globe and Mail. Could you just address... Uh, parental expectations real quick, because this is just really bullseye for me, because as I read the, you know, as I read report cards, and then you just had to think, well, like, mm, you know, I have to take the, I, even though the, the, the school system doesn't take it into account, I as a parent have to take into account, you know, the fact that they've been at home since Christmas. That's right. And I think we are expecting a lot from kids right now. We're expecting them to be as resilient as ever. And we have to realize that we are stressed out. Can you imagine how the kids are feeling? (laughs) Many of them are stressed out as well. And I think we need to take that. I mean, there's a lot of talk about the mental health and well-being of kids. And yes, we have to make that a priority right now. And we have to think that, you know, even the little ones, they're doing the best they can under circumstances where they have to wear masks all day at school. Yeah. Caroline, great talking to you. Uh, and thanks again. Your piece is excellent. It's in the Globe and Mail right now. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Alan. That is Caroline Alfonso, who is the education reporter for the Globe and Mail. I want to play something for you. This is the big news story coming out of Queens Park today. Uh, it's going to reverberate. It's got uh, people talking. It has a lot of opinions on both sides. And earlier in the program, we heard a lot of your opinions. I will play it for you again. This is Doug Ford speaking to Andrea Horvath in the legislature, uh, responding to criticisms from the leader of the opposition about Ontario's response to the pandemic. It's like listening to nails on a chalkboard listening to you. That is Doug Ford to Andrea Horvath after he said that. Members of the NDP complained that it was sexist, it was misogynist. The leader of the Ontario Liberals have, has echoed that call, as has the leader of the Ontario Greens, all calling on the Premier to apologize. Here is Andrea Horvath's response. Well, you know, it's uh, it's really not about me personally. It's a, it's about, you know, the fight that I have and that I bring here to Queen's Park on behalf of everyday uh, families. Uh, the, the, you know, the criticism as well as the proposals that we're bringing forward. Uh, at the end of the day, when the Premier doesn't like uh, being questioned, doesn't like being criticized, he, he goes to the worst possible place. That's, you know, that's just who he is. Uh, but who I am is somebody who's going to come here every day and fight for the people of Ontario, regardless of the kind of mud that the Premier's going to sling. Does he owe you an apology? I think he owes the people of Ontario an apology. I mean, this kind of behaviour from a Premier is um, is wholly inappropriate, and, uh, you know, and, and it's un- unfortunate that he doesn't see it that way. That is Andrea Horvath reacting to what Doug Ford said to her in the House today, that listening to her was like nails on a chalkboard. Do you agree? Does the Premier owe the province an apology? That is the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.